HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. As the news of coronavirus reverberates throughout the world, we at HRN are especially concerned about how coronavirus will impact our food system. We will use our platform to support the restaurant, agriculture, hospitality, and other food-related industries by maintaining our coverage and operations. As social distancing becomes the temporary norm, podcasts are more important than ever. There's never been a more crucial time to stay informed about the state of our food system and the ways that food connects our global community. We're sharing all of our COVID-19 coverage at heritageradionetwork.org COVID-19. From interviews with nonprofit leaders and journalists, to first-hand accounts from chefs and restaurant owners, to reports on how this crisis is affecting regional farms. Our team is working remotely from all over to keep food radio alive. HRN needs your support more than ever to keep sharing essential stories and resources with our listeners. Make a donation of any amount. Visit heritageradionetwork.org donate. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese, where cheesemakers have been making award-winning cheese for generations. Go to wisconsincheese.com to order directly from Wisconsin Dairies to your home. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome cookbook author and journalist, Melissa Clark. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Melissa about cooking from her pantry, her latest book, Dinner in French, and we'll hear Melissa's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Here at the Foundation, we continue to send well wishes and our appreciation to those affected by the pandemic, especially the frontline workers keeping us safe and healthy, and all those in the hospitality industry weathering the shocks and trying to figure out the future. We hope our podcast, Julia's programs, and her books are helping to get everyone through. 
Now, I'd wager I'm not alone in saying one of the things that helps me get through is to think about all the places I long to travel when it's safe to do so, both new and familiar. And of course, what I'm going to eat there. Whether that's the Spice Islands in Indonesia I was just reading about, or our family's vacation base in France's Roussillon, those moments of mental escape can really help keep us going. Now, another activity, if you need to get out of your own head, is cooking. Julia famously combined her passion for seeing the world, France, and cooking into a career that changed how Americans viewed all three. France to Julia represented an adopted homeland, one that welcomed her with its food and traditions that just seemed right, a missing puzzle piece that completed who she was always meant to be. Today, some 70 years since Julia set foot in France, her legacy is firmly tied to that Franco-American connection. Someone who also has combined a love affair with France, French food, and cooking is food writer and New York Times columnist Melissa Clark. Like Julia, Melissa's explorations of France and French food led her on a path towards becoming a food professional, a cook, a writer, and a lifelong Francophile. Unlike Julia, Melissa was lucky enough to be shown France and to eat there as a young child, perhaps cementing in her cooking inspiration and know-how that Julia would have envied. Melissa has been a New York Times food section columnist since 2007, covering food trends and writing recipes, lots of recipes. She's known for her A Good Appetite column, but recently pivoted to From the Pantry, a new column in service to the quarantined cooks and eaters. A Brooklyn native who's authored dozens of cookbooks, she joins us today to talk about her latest, Dinner in French, My Recipes by Way of France. It contains a whopping 150 new recipes, they are in English, which are contemporary while retaining a distinct French sensibility. Welcome to the podcast, Melissa. Thanks for having me. So how are you doing amidst everything that's going on? We are, you know, we are hunkered down. We are, um, we're, we're doing okay. I mean, I, you know, I vacillate between feeling incredibly lucky that we have a comfortable home and I'm with my family, I'm with my daughter and my husband, and we're eating really, really well. So I know that we're lucky. And then I also feel sad for all the things that are going to be lost, that are lost now, like restaurant culture, um, which is going to change. And I mean, and of course, I feel even worse for, you know, just every time I hear an ambulance go by, I think of people who are suffering. And I, so it's, it's a hard time, you know, it's, it's both um, cozy and like I said, we're eating well, but then it's also, you know, full of grief for what's happening in the world. Yeah, no, it's that, that I think that's a very apt district. That, that's an apt district description for the lucky. And then it's sort of all downhill for the for the, the, the less lucky and advantage. So let, let's try to cheer everyone up with the rest of the conversation. So Absolutely. Uh, um, it seems like that the pivot that you guys made at the times to or maybe just you personally requested be made you'll tell us about that to from the pantry has really struck a chord with readers who are naturally spending a lot more time in their home kitchens and i was just curious i know you get a lot of reader feedback what what kind of response has you been getting to the column it's um very mixed so the oh, column oh. yeah no i mean most people love it but you know there are people who are there you know, there's a people have a lot to say about it. I have I have to uh, I have to say people are very um, they're they're writing in comments and I'm trying to read them all. 
Um, so the idea behind the column was that I wanted to be able to teach people how to use all the things that they've stocked in their pantries, you know, as the, during the beginning <laughs> pandemic, right? We all ran out and gun shopping. I'm sure you did too, right? <laughs> well, I wasn't going to until I got to the store and everyone else was, and it, it just it plays with your mind. You're like, well, if they're buying 10,000 lentils, I need to be buying 10,000 lentils. Exactly. And what all of that toilet paper. But um, so people <laughs> up on things like lentils and beans and pastas. And I wanted to give them ideas on how to use these things, especially for people who don't cook a lot. Um, I know a lot of people who rely on takeout, who eat in restaurants, or who um, are cooked for by other people, but then when they're sheltering in place, they're sheltering in place alone. So it's it's a very different way of cooking. And even for people who love to cook, like my, like me, I mean, I love cooking more than anything, but I don't think I've ever gone this long cooking three meals a day for my family without <laughs> without going to a restaurant. <laughs> it was, so it's just a really different rhythm. Yeah. And I wanted to address that in the column. And because... Um, so the Times has NYT Cooking, which is a fantastic resource for cooks, and it has, I mean, thousands of recipes. But it's a it's a subscription service, and what I wanted to do to for the benefit of all readers, whether they subscribe or not, was to make sure that my information was in front of this paywall, so that it could be accessed by anybody who came to the New York Times website. And the Times is offering their coronavirus um, information for free. So I wanted this to be part of that package to impact as many people as possible. And the way that I have been able to do this is to write the recipes in a conversational narrative style um, without listing out the ingredients in a traditional recipe form, you know, like two tablespoons of um, sesame seeds. Um, It's all together in a paragraph. And so the complaints I've had is a lot of people are having a lot of trouble with this format because it is a bit harder to follow than I mean, the reason that we write out a recipe the way we do is for ease of being able to cook. You know, all their ingredients are listed out. So this makes it slightly, in the one hand, it makes it, you know, people have to take an extra beat just because also they're not used to reading recipes like this. I mean, even, you know, 50 years ago and before that, all recipes were written out in a narrative form, but we're not accustomed to it. And so a lot of people are complaining, (laughs) but also a lot of people. Reading it. So, and then, you know, and, and I know that for the comments, some people are very happy to be able to get the information. So that's what I mean by mixed. Um, however, before we all started wearing masks, people would stop me on the street and say, I really appreciate, you know, what you're doing and I really am living by your recipes. But now nobody recognizes me. So. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, I I guess I was right that it had struck a chord in many ways. And I I guess, have you seen any difference too? Obviously, there's a big difference between being stuck in Manhattan in a Manhattan-sized kitchen, um, unless you're very privileged, and being stuck at home somewhere else in the country in a maybe more typical-sized kitchen. Have you been getting feedback on that? I don't know what kind of split actually New York Times cooking has between New York readers and national, international readers. That's a really good question. I mean, I think we're mostly New York based, but um, I have not been getting a lot of complaints about having a small kitchen. I mean, the recipes I've been doing, they've also been pretty basic and they've been pretty um, really geared toward people who um, are not necessarily 100 percent comfortable in the kitchen. Um, So, you know, I don't think kitchen size has been a factor. But you have been getting, uh, despite the change in format, positive feedback in terms of people saying, this is really helpful to me. Thank you for putting this front and center as part of your Oh, yeah. oh lots of that. Lots of that. Oh, 
Well, that's great to hear because I would like, you know, everyone's talking about how much people are cooking or being forced to cook. But I'm still, I guess, because I went to business school or something, I'm like dying to see actual data because I feel like, you know, we're talking to people within a lot within the food world and cooking community. And so that also means our social media feeds are full of people who are already sort of inclined. And I'm really curious about having just, it was cycling this weekend and by um, in the UK, there's a store called Iceland where everything is frozen and there was a very long line outside of it and so have have you guys explored that yet like the hard facts of how much people are really cooking more or not um you know i'm sure that um i'm sure there's data you know available it's not something i've been looking at i can tell you that um we have more and more i mean just in terms of ny cooking um data there's so many more people who are using the website who are subscribing. I know our Instagram account has been thriving. Um, my own personal, you know, social media accounts have been kind of lit up and exploding. So I do think that more people, you know, even if they're not, even if they are lining up and buying frozen, you know, frozen foods, frozen entrees, or even if they're doing, t- you know, more takeout than my family is doing, um, I, cause there are a lot of takeout options. Um, I think they are aware that, cooking is a thing one has to do, you know, at this time, you you have to cook something you can, we used I mean, think about it, like the way people used to be able, you know, people who were formerly part of office culture, you know, you'd get up, you'd buy your coffee and your bagel on your way to work, right? You ate at your work cafeteria, or you picked up lunch somewhere near work. And then often at some places you, you know, you either ate dinner at work or you went straight out to a restaurant, right? So many millions of people live their lives that way. And you were working from home if we're working. And it's, it's a completely different way of living for a huge chunk of our, of our culture. Um, not everybody. I mean, some people are already cooking, but so, you know, but everybody's looking at food differently, I think, is sort of the bottom line. It's that, that thing that connects us is that we have to think about it differently from the way we used to think about it. Yeah, no, I think that's an excellent summation of sort of all the changes sort of across the spectrum. And um, so you mentioned that, you know, and and I've read, I, there, there's a very funny article in, in the Atlantic uh, Monthly that Stanley Tucci wrote about feeling like he's running a restaurant for his He's at home with five children and uh, ranging in age from two to 21. And so I was curious for you, given that, you know, you've always been an advocate of sort of almost like a cheerleader, like you can fit home cooking, even if you're busy and you have a family, it can be done. And here's how. So for you, you mentioned now you're at home for a lot more years. How would you describe how your home cooking has changed since lockdown? You know, I'm using recipes, other people's recipes a lot more than I used to. I always got inspired by other people's recipes, but I never stuck to them. I'm not much of a recipe follower, but now I'm using them because I'm trying to push myself and challenge myself in ways that I didn't used to do. I mean, I probably, we would go out three nights a week. So, you know, that means I'm making almost double the amount of dinners that I used to make. Um... And uh, I'm getting a little tired of my own home cooking. So I'm I'm reaching out to cookbook authors. I'm trying to find um, just, you know, cultures of 
cuisines I'm not used to cooking and, and maybe diving deep into the ones I am used to cooking. Like if I'm used to cooking, you know, I have a certain number of Thai recipes that I make. I'm trying to delve deep into, okay, well, let's, let's really discover the difference between, you know, the regional differences between the, uh, in the cuisine and um, just taking a deeper dive into things I'm familiar with and learning about things I'm not. Like I was just this morning before I was talking to you, I, um, I started reading this Armenian cookbook that I haven't looked at in, in months. And, um, and I know I'll be trying some of those recipes as well. So that's been super fun. Um, the downside is um, I am getting a little tired of my own cooking, <laughs> but mm. I'm going to fix that. I'm going to try new things. Yeah. Now, now do you, do you, do you hand over the reins at some point to your daughter or husband for a break or is, is that not, not a thing that you're comfortable doing? Well, we cook together. Um, we do pizza night together. We've been doing pizza night every other week. So that's been super fun. Um, my husband, you know, typical, typical, uh, sexist divide in our house is he does the grill and I tend to, you know, keep in charge of the kitchen. Um, he bakes the bread though. So actually he's contributes hugely in that way. I guess we both kind of have our things that we like to do. And my daughter, baked her first chocolate chip cookies all by herself. She's 11. And um, I went on a big, long run. And when I came back on Mother's Day, there were chocolate chip cookies for me. So, you know, she's also pushing herself. It, I mean, okay, let's just be perfectly honest. I don't really like people cooking in my kitchen. So... <laughs> Well, that was kind of why I asked the question, but it's, yeah, it's, it sounds like you're, uh, you've got a good, 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 good balance. Yeah. So, I'm trying to present myself as like, oh, really open and we all cook together, but uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll have to sneak around me. <laughs> like, we'll yeah. Have to be- you'll have to listen to the episode back with your husband and daughter and see what their reaction is. It's going to be like, yeah, uh-huh. No, but it's true. I mean, it, it is, I am actually trying to let them into the kitchen more and, um, yeah, <laughs> and share the well, reins. I- I'm a little bit of a control freak when it comes to my kitchen, but let's just well, put we, it all We enjoyed there. your your mac and cheese recipe over the weekend, and I loved how your um, advice ended with handing the remote to your tween, because I, too, have an 11-year-old daughter, and that is exactly what is expected. Yes, right? It's like every once in a while, you just have to sit down. I'm not big about eating in front of the TV. It's something that I don't like us to do as a family, but every once in a while, you have to balance your plate on your lap and turn on that TV and just hand the remote over and um, watch a bunch of the new episodes of she which just came out. Oh, okay. I'll take that recommendation. Yeah. Um, I, so I, a little more serious, I am curious, has the food section's conversation started to turn toward what you will do and how you will do it after quarantine? Or is everyone kind of agreed it's too soon and we don't know? Yeah, we don't know. We are taking that very week by week. Um, We're trying to be flexible and we're trying to be nimble. And I think that's what we're focusing on is responding as quickly as we can to what people have been saying they want and offering, you know, Um, like we're trying to offer more recipes for free. Also, aside from my pantry recipes, we've been working really hard at trying to, you know, help people cook more at home. Um, but it's, you know, the logistics of that is changing. So we are being on the one hand, we are always look ahead. We always look to the future, but not, we don't have anything concrete. Um, and we're trying to respond the best way we can to what people say they need on a daily basis. We get a lot of um, response. There are many places people can leave notes and comments, you know. So, <laughs> These days. Somebody look at that. <laughs> well, and more time for them to do so as well. Yeah, it's a very good point, actually. 
And do you, is there a consensus, though, that this is maybe even cliche to ask, but that it won't be the way it was after the pandemic? And, you know, I also have this kind of feeling like before the pandemic, dining out had become like it's almost like a sport, you know, between the posting of the pictures and the proliferation of restaurants. And is have you guys is dining out as a sport sort of dead and that's not going to come back? I mean, what kind of conversation has sort of emerged so far? Yeah, that is definitely going to change drastically. I mean, right now we have our restaurant critic, Pete Wells. He's um, reporting, you know, he's on a reporter's beat. And Tejal also, Tejal Rao, our other restaurant critic in um, in California. So our critics are now um, doing reporting and they're reporting on restaurants, but they're reporting on a bunch of other things. So that has completely changed. And we don't know how, what it's going to look like for them and for restaurants. Um, I know that I think what's going to be interesting, though, is because there's such a different regional response to the U.S. and mm. different states are doing things on their own timelines and different communities have different needs in terms of what they need for their restaurants. So it's not going to be this kind of homogeneous new way to to think about restaurant coverage. It's going to be very, I think, regionally specific. And that's going to be interesting for us also, because we're not going to be, I mean, I don't think reporters are going to be getting on airplanes and traveling very much. So it's going to be interesting to see the way that we handle it. I don't, you know, we, we're talking, this is stuff we talk, we're talking about, but we don't have a plan. I see. Well, no, that's an interesting idea because we sort of in the last year have covered a lot about talking about American regionalism and food and whether it exists and how it exists and is it spotty. But maybe that's a silver lining of the pandemic of that will become much more important. And even the way that it's covered will will be more um, uh, diversified. Yeah. Yes, I hope so. Okay, we're going to take a break and we'll be back with Melissa Clark to talk about our new book, Dinner in French. Stay with us. Despite challenging circumstances, dairy farmers are working hard to make sure communities across the country have fresh, nutritious food to keep us healthy during these uncertain times. It's more important than ever to eat, enjoy, and support real dairy. Want to help? Go to wisconsincheese.com where you can order award-winning Wisconsin cheese directly from cheesemakers to keep our family dairy farms in business for generations to come. Welcome back. We're talking to New York Times columnist Melissa Clark about her new cookbook, Dinner in French, My Recipes by Way of France. So it's easy to read that title and think, oh, okay, another cookbook on French food. However, if you read it carefully, it actually reflects that the recipes are inspired by classic French dishes, but approached with kind of a global cuisine twist. So Melissa, was this really a conscious effort at adapting French recipes, or does it really just reflect the way you like to cook? It is, well, it's both. I mean, um, it's not to say this is how I cook all the time. I mean, this is, I what I wanted to do was I wanted to highlight recipes that are French in, in their soul, somehow French in their soul. And then I wanted to the... So I, I started with these recipes. They are French. And then I put them through my filter, the Melissa Clark experience and <laughs> love and prejudices and appetites, right? And mm-hmm. so through, when you know you get through my filter, you I started with something 
very French and ended up with something kind of wacky. Um, but I hope in a good way, in a way that pleases me. I mean, it's of course, you know, all appetites and flavors are, and, um, uh, just desires are very subjective, right? So this is what I wanted to, this is how I wanted to kind of have my way with these French dishes. But the, the, the thing about it is they all started out as French or sort of French or mostly French. And then I took them from there. So a good example is um, an omelet, right? What can be more French than a perfect omelet? And obviously speaking about Julia Child, I mean, I learned how to make an omelet from Julia and it was a very specific way. Um, I definitely will never have her skill at making an omelet. And I think an omelet was like the first thing she ever made on TV, actually. Uh, so for me, it was like, well, what, what, how do you, and I, I never wanted to improve upon the recipes. It wasn't like you don't improve upon an omelet. It is perfect. But how do I want to eat an omelet? And um, so for the book, what I did was I thought about the richness of cheese in an omelet and how when, you know, you, it, that it melts. And, and even if you don't use cheese, just the silkiness of the eggs and the custardy um, interior of an omelet. And I thought, what is something else that is like that? And I thought about tahini. Now, tahini is definitely not French. I mean, obviously, people use it in France now all the time, but it's certainly um, not. <laughs> it's not in his coffee. <laughs> uh, and and I have a lot. I have fallen hard for tahini after my, you know, immersion in Odalengi cuisine, Middle Eastern food and um, Odalengi's cookbooks. And I uh, wanted to pair the two. And it turns out it's a fantastic pairing. Garlicky tahini with a French omelet is just bliss. And it's not something that you would see. It's not classic. It's not traditional. But it is um, this just this perfect combination of a perfect French dish, you know, run through the, you know, run through my, my own desires. Well, I also wanted since you brought up the omelet making, and what I think is really funny is Julia shows you how to make an omelet. And I was taught by my mother-in-law, the food writer, and willing to make an omelet a certain way. And I've now learned that particularly all chefs and particularly French chefs have a way to make an omelet, which they say, this is how you make an omelet. There is no other way it is not correct, except then you learn that actually you know, you line up 12 super talented French chefs and they will all make their omelets slightly differently. You know, that's what I, I, I wrote a lot of cookbooks with um, French chefs before I went out on my own to write cookbooks. I did a lot of um, co-authoring and I worked with David Boulet and Danielle Belude and, um, and other French chefs. And I, re- what I learned from them was you know, I thought that French cuisine was all about one technique. It was la technique. It was this perfect thing and you learned the thing. But in fact, that's not true. There's so much variation and there's so much um, there's so much more to learn about each technique, like even just chopping an onion. Yeah, there's a way to chop an onion, but then there's another way to chop an onion. And, you know, one French chef, even if it's they're working sort of within the confines of classic French technique is still doing it a different way. There's little micro choices that you make along the way. Um, like how, you know, how thick the, the cubes are going to be to get you different results. Right. So I guess what I'm saying is that it totally, the, the minutia of it just freed me up because it's like, Oh my God, they're all doing it their own ways. They're all doing it differently yet. They're all doing it still according to technique. So that is freeing and that is amazing. And that means I can put my own spin on things too, while still in a way kind of like driving in the same lane. 
Yeah, no, I'm so glad you said that because I think it's quite freeing once you realize that that they're and it's sort of like everyone's way actually has a lot to do with who their their master teacher was. And so their way is the way they were taught. But they're like you said, there's multiple different lanes and there are these variations. But but I think once you see that, it I don't know, I, it helps me relax about, you know, going my own way or making making it not exactly the way that Julia showed on TV. Yeah, exactly. I agree. I mean, that and that just being able to be free like that, um, I think is a gift for every cook. So I hope hope more people are doing that now. Um, and I know that that was um, also kind of the loosening up of what we consider French food. You know, I think in the in this country, in America, people are very, they really do think that it's kind of a very structured thing. But then you go to France and you see the way people just cook. And, you know, what, part of the inspiration for my book was I wanted to write about also the things that French people were just making for dinner in their homes. They were not making really fancy sauces. You know, they were not making, you know, blancs every night. They were just cooking seasonal, fresh, delicious food. Yeah, no, I love I love that if you read, you know, Dory Greenspan's head notes and some of her baking books from France, and she's like, it turns out the secret ingredient to this recipe is store-bought cookies in France. And, you know, <laughs> that, right? It's just, and she's like, but it's still good, and you should still do it that way. So I love that. So true. And speaking of head notes, so I noticed, I couldn't help but notice that many of your recipe head notes, you give sort of a shout out to Julia or even Mastering the Art of French Cooking. And so were you kind of channeling her in some respects in writing this book or is it just those specific mentions? No, she was always on my mind. Um, I mean, my I grew up in a Julia-centric household. My parents, I mean, not to say they cooked their way through mastering, you know, the art of French cuisine, but they... They definitely cooked a lot of it. And, um, you know, they were doing it, it. I feel like, you know, right when those books came out in the 70s was when they were they were like of that moment. Um, mm. All the parties were from, you know, they would assign different dishes from Julia's books and everybody would, um, all the guests would make a dish. It was like a pot, it was like a Julia Child potluck. They did that all the time. And so... Julia was just, she was just like a character in her household in a way. Like she was, you know, she was like my parents, both my parents cooked, not just my mom. My dad was a great cook too. And uh, so she was their mentor. Oh, that's lovely. And right, you haven't talked about this that much, but there's a certain impetus and kind of emotional inspiration from your childhood and how you were raised that has kind of informed this book. Yeah. I learned how to cook from my parents and I learned how to cook from them in France specifically. Um, we grew, I grew up going to France every summer. It was a crazy childhood. I was super lucky. My parents fell in love with France before I was born um, and they made it their life's mission to get back there every single summer. And so they were psychiatrists and they had August off because back in the day, that's what psychiatrists used to do. Um, because <laughs> no one had mental health issues in August. Right. Because if you right, if you went crazy in August, you were just you just had to wait until September, you know. <laughs> um, but that was the accepted practice. And so what they did was um they house exchanged. So they would and this was before the internet. This was before people house exchanged. This was before Airbnb. Um you we had to write letters. We we'd get a book, like this published catalog every January, and we would pour through it and we would write letters to all the people in France listed in the book whose houses were gonna be big enough for our family of four. And we'd, you know, send these actual letters overseas and then we would wait weeks to get letters back. <laughs> 
<laughs> to arrange these house exchanges. Um, and we were very much ahead of our time in that way. And it was fantastic because we, you know, we would go to these wonderful little towns all through France, mostly in the South because my mother loved Provence. I mean, who doesn't? But we'd go, we went all over the country and the French people would come to, you know, 1980s Brooklyn, which was a, not the Brooklyn that we all know now. <laughs> yeah, I would that's say true. we better under the deal. <laughs> yes. And we would cook. That's when we cooked. You know, my parents both worked. So we did not, I did not cook with them very often um, when I was um, in Brooklyn during the year. But in August, we all cooked together and we went to markets and we cooked just like the French people did. And it was amazing. And that was where I learned. And I learned from my parents who learned from Julia. I think that, that that's a, a lovely thing to think about and also to just have that thought of what August vacations when you're all staying together as a family and kind of cooking more and that whole kind of summer vibe is really hopefully going to be there to look forward to. So I wanted to ask you on a little d- different tag, a little bit more about the recipes in the book, which there are an amazing amount of very tantalizing recipes. And the book, I presume, was really written, conceived, and finished pre-COVID. So I was curious, looking at it through now this new lens, you know, what are a few examples of recipes that you think might um, kind of speak to people stuck at home right now? Um, I, I, you know, it's I've been looking on Instagram to see what people are making, and they're making a very untraditional kind of wacky recipe, my Campari cake. So mm. you may say. Campari, why? That has nothing to do with France. And it is true. Campari is an Italian aperitivo. Um, It's a bitter. But I decided to put it into this very simple cake, which is very loosely based on a French yogurt cake. But really, the reason I chose Campari is because that's what we drank when I, that's what my parents drank when I was a kid and we were in France. It's very personal. They drank Campari and soda. I started drinking Campari and soda when I was a student in France. Um, so to me, I mean, we didn't spend a lot of time in Italy, so I guess to me, <laughs> Campari belongs in France. So it's, <laughs> and it's really simple. And other than the Campari, it's very, it's a one bowl cake. You can mix it in a bowl. It uses lots of citrus fruit. And I know people have bought up the citrus fruit and they're keeping it in their fridge because citrus lasts a long time. It'll last for weeks in the fridge. So it's a pantry recipe. It's a simple recipe. And the Campari gives it that je ne sais quoi. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, another one is um, a Gruyere and ham picnic loaf or um, uh, carrying cake or loaf cake or savory, savory cake, I guess, um, that, um, you know, savory loaf cakes are not really a thing. You know, we in the States, we have, you know, our loaf cakes are all sweet. They're carrot, mm. pumpkin or banana, really banana bread is, you know, it's all about banana bread, actually. But savory cakes in France. <laughs> are a thing. And so this is very, it's inspired by that. Um, Super easy to make. Again, pantry staples. You could use any cheese. You can skip the ham. You could use olives or not. And it's just this wonderful, unusual thing to make pretty quickly. Um, So people have been making that. And um, yeah, those are really the two, like those are the two that I see people making a lot. Also all the egg dishes. I have an entire chapter on eggs and an entire chapter on things to do with cheese. So again, if you have those in the house, there's a lot of recipes to explore. And also a lot of the food, even if they're not pantry specific, they're very, you know, we are still getting a lot of fresh vegetables and meats and they are um, seasonal and they're easy. And, you know, me being me, I hate, I can't stand to 
dirtying up too many dishes when I'm cooking. I'm very practical. And that comes through in the book too. Like, for example, let's talk about Julia's ratatouille, right? Okay. Because I learned how to make ratatouille from her recipe, which is very, um, let's just say it takes a long time. It's delicious, but it takes a really long time. And you spend a lot of it, you know, at the stove stirring um, before you finally bake it. Um, And I went my own way with that and did a sheet pan ratatouille and I plopped a chicken on top of it. So it, it, you know, what was this classic French dish? I have made it into a sheet pan supper, practical, you know, delicious because it's ratatouille and then the chicken just takes it to the next level. Well, and you, yeah, and you're saving, uh, you're washing one pan rather than two. Exactly. Yeah, that is something that, at least in traditional French cooking, there, there there is always some assumption that you have some washer-upper available because everything is cooked in a different pan. I know. <laughs> so as someone who has also become a veteran of house swaps, exchanges, things like that, which re- really is, mo- I mean, we've had fantastic luck with it. And once we have two children, once you have a larger family, it really becomes a, a much more practical way, although it posits that you have a house that you can swap with. But so I was curious, just thinking toward a post-COVID future, do you and your family do it or do you see house swaps in France in your future? We don't, you know, my, my, I did it when I was a kid with my parents, my parents, their house was like, my grandmother called it the Clark Hilton. You know, we were always having people stay with us. We would stay with other people. We'd exchange houses. It was a very kind of loose existence in a way, very casual. Um, our, our house is a little different. I would be more open to exchanges. My husband's not really into it. So we've done it very sparingly, only with people we know. Um, so, you know, it's it's funny. It's different. He's Our house is really old in Brooklyn, and he's just not having um, – he's not comfortable having strangers in. So we, we have different – you know, when you when you marry somebody, things, you, you got to just uh, – Go with the person who's the least comfortable in the situation so that everybody's comfortable. Um, So I'm working, which is to say I'm working on getting him more comfortable with house exchanges. I think they're fabulous. Um, We we have mostly done rentals, um, Airbnb type things, or again, or we've exchanged with people, with friends. But, you know, you have to have a lot of friends if you want to travel all all over the country. (laughs) And do you guys still go to France routinely or only... We absolutely do. Yeah, my husband went to college in France, um, in Bordeaux for a year. So, um, and and he also lived in Paris. So he also is a big Francophile. So we love going to France, and we try to go every summer. And we will absolutely go as soon as we can. Um, I just don't know if we'll be doing an exchange, but we will absolutely be that. We will be back on a plane as soon as it is safe to get back on a plane. And do you still favor Provence or do you have a f- other favorite region or do you try to go different places every time? We usually go to Paris and then pick another region to explore. Uh, we have spent a lot of time in Provence. We've gone to Bordeaux. Um, I would love to get back to Brittany. I haven't been there since I was a teenager. I mean, oh God, I love the whole country. But um, so, yeah, we're, we've been exploring. And, you know, sometimes we actually go other places, too. <laughs> It's good to kind of, you know, see lots of lots of different places. My daughter is um, taking Spanish in school. And so she really has been um, interested in going to Spanish speaking countries. So we might this. Uh, and of course, I can't imagine not going to France. So I'm like, well, what if we go to Paris? And then we then we, you know, fly over to Barcelona. So. Well, I have the perfect solution for you. So our family has started spending a lot of time in the Roussillon. 
um, outside of Perpignan, which is the southwest near in the Pyrenees near the uh, Spanish yeah. border. And yes. you can you, you can even fly through Barcelona to get there. And the other thing for you professionally that I think is the best piece of trivia is in Perpignan, there is something called the Marseille Saint-Charles. Have you ever heard of that? No. It is the largest center of distribution of fresh fruit and vegetable for most of Europe. So everything from Spain and North Africa goes through this one giant distribution center of fresh produce in Perpignan. I had no idea. And that's actually a really good, that is good for me to check out. Um, yeah, so no, there I you haven't... are. You can, you, you can get Sam to pay for it and you can get, you can pop down. It's so easy to go down to Barcelona and G- Girona's in between. And then you can do all the Salvador Dali stuff because Catechez, where he lived, is kind of just over the border. Okay, we've never done that. That sounds like a great... All right, well, there we go. So as soon as we can, that will be our next trip. That sounds fantastic. Um, We love Barcelona, so any excuse as well. Great. So we're asking you, listeners, have you embraced cooking from your pantry during quarantine? Do you want to share with us your favorite Melissa Clark recipe? Send us an email or a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org, or better yet, tweet us at juliachildjcf and let us know. After the break, Melissa's going to share her Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call... The Julia moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she's inspired them in their career. All right, Melissa, I hope we haven't exhausted all your Julia thoughts. What's your Julia moment? Oh, no, I have so many Julia thoughts. Okay, my Julia moment is, I mean, I'm sure a lot of guests talk about the time that she dropped the chicken. <laughs> okay, go for it. Is that, I mean, is that does that come up a lot? Um, because I just- Well, it you know, does. I'm going to let you say what you're going to say, but go ahead. Um, now, this is one of those things. So this is um, the reason that this is such an important moment is so I never watched Julia on TV. Like, I think I saw her once or twice. So I never saw this. And I don't even know if it's true. Um, so I like I'm wondering if, you know, now that I'm saying it, I'm like, is it true? I don't know. But what I love, the, the, the moment that stands out in my mind of stories about Julia Child is when she supposedly dropped this chicken and picked it up and wiped it off and said, the good thing about having your own kitchen is nobody can see what you're doing and proceeded with the recipe. And that is my, that is absolutely how I am in the kitchen. It's such an inspiration because what that says to me is, you know what? Things aren't going to always go right. And if you make a mistake, just carry on because you can still make something delicious. And I think about that all the time. I mean, not specifically a dropped chicken, but this, uh, anytime I make a mistake, you know, I'm like, you know what, how, what's the best way to get through this and get to the end, which, and the end is a delicious meal. And so that is what I think of, you know, to me, Julia Child is the cook, the most resourceful person who can, you know, make a mistake and go on and make something amazing. Now tell me, did it really happen? As far as we know, it never happened. But you're not the only, you're not, you are actually the only person I think who's brought this up as a Julia moment. The more common Julia moment 
um, which is not super common, but people, who, particularly who didn't have a chance to meet her, reference like the first time they watched The French Chef. And sometimes that was as a child, like with Rick Bayless, and more often it was as an older kid or an adult. But no one's brought up the chicken. But it's a very, I mean, there are people who will vehemently tell you it happened. And we don't take the position that it never happened, but we've never been able to find the footage or, or the record. And, you know, the, the sound clip we use is from when she spills what actually is potato pancake very early on and says that famous line. Um, but we also think it may have something to do with the fact that there were so many parodies of Julia that a lot of things gets kind of co- uh, combined in people's mind as a memory where they're merging actual Julia with comedy about Julia. Oh, that's funny. That's probably true. Yeah, because I don't know that it happened and I never saw it, but I just love that to me. And that, I mean... So then the potato pancakes, the same thing. I'll actually be more correct about it going forward. But the idea that, you know what, she's on TV and she makes a mistake and she carries on, right? How great is that? No, exactly. And I think I think you got the message of that. And I think that is even what people mean when they say, and, and I've it hasn't happened to me in particular, but other members of the Foundation family have said that people have vehemently argued with them that they saw it and that the whoever it is, is wrong. So maybe it does exist out there. I mean, we've talked to WGBH staff before who've been like, we've been looking for it. We can't find it. What episode is it? (laughs) So it is an ongoing mystery of the universe. I wonder if you could find the parody of it. I bet it was a parody that got conflated in people's minds. We haven't yet, because it's actually not the Dan Aykroyd parody that's one of the most famous is 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 actually incredibly gory. And it's mostly about him cutting off fingers and blood spurting everywhere. Ew. Okay. No, I never saw that one either. No, it's I'm, very, I'm, it's very funny. And but there is footage. I came across footage of Julia on on a show. You might be old enough, Melissa, there, because this is predates me. But I know about it just sort of historically. There was a show called Dick Cavett, and he was a talk show host. And Julia was on Dick Cavett showing him how to cook. Who knew? And it was actually very amusing. Oh, I, I have not. I have never seen. I've certainly never seen that one either. But. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess I really should have. I mean, to me, you know, so there was that moment, I guess, that that apocryphal moment that happened or didn't happen. But um, I, you know, it's I, I love reading her books. You know, I, I spent a lot of time um, because there. I guess I just spent a lot of time, you know, taking apart the way she tells the way she tells a recipe. It's almost like telling a story. You know, they're very very complete. And um, I learned from that. I've definitely learned from that. I love to read her recipes. They are so detailed and you just can't go wrong. No. And I think if you read her recipes or you kind of take them with a a slightly studied approach, you, you see how very specific she is with language. And that she she is very efficient, but it, it it's very clear that it it was or either that she had amazing clarity, but it it it's very um, clear and efficient. Yeah, yes, um, and I think uh, I think as recipe as a recipe writer myself, there is much to be learned from dipping back into that. Indeed. Well, Melissa, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Todd. It was great to talk to you. A pleasure. And thanks, everyone, for listening. So to see and hear about what Melissa's cooking, it's at Clark Barr on Instagram and at Melissa Clark on Twitter. 
Her new book, as we talked about, is Dinner in French, My Recipes by Way of France. It's full of mouthwatering recipes as well as lovely photographs by Laura Edwards. And it's out now from Clarkson Potter. Ask or search for it at your favorite bookselling outlet. Continue to stay up to date with everything that's going on in the foundation. It's at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram and at Julia Child JCF. And I'm at T. Shulkin on Twitter. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks, as always, to my co-producer of the Foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Amanda Wang. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Veltorni. Please give us a review. It really does help listeners discover the show. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>